Perth seems a million miles away from New York City, but it frames the journey of Carmel Dean, a musical practitioner of intellectual and creative power. She has been applauded extensively in a variety of roles that include composer, musical director, arranger and pianist. Early training in classical piano and study at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts confirmed an ambition harboured by Carmel. She wanted to create, write and perform music, chiefly in the genre of musical theatre. In 2001, she was awarded a Fulbright scholarship to study in the United States and subsequently graduated from NYU's Graduate Musical Theatre Writing Program. A dynamic and open approach to her work and an easy charm saw her triumph in a succession of creative tasks, transposing, teaching and accompaniment, building collaborative relationships and demonstrating solid instincts. These experiences soon led to roles in musical direction. As musical director, she has guided the Broadway productions of If Then, Hands on a Hard Body, American Idiot and the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. Off-Broadway credits include Everyday Rapture, Vanities and Elegies, a song cycle by William Finn. As composer, Carmel's first musical, Renaissance, was recently produced Off-Broadway and was named Best New Musical of the 2018 Off-Broadway Alliance Awards. A song cycle titled Well-Behaved Women had its premiere performance in New York at Joe's Pub in January 2020. Carmel Dean is a remarkable musician and an inspiring woman. She is also incredibly charming. We connected with Carmel remotely to traverse her extraordinary career thus far and to receive fascinating insight into the construction of a musical, the responsibility of leading a musical department on the Great White Way and the adventures of living in New York City. So that's it, Carmel. Over. You know, uh, that was so with, great. <laughs> with radio talk, when they go over and out, over, right? <laughs> over and out. Reminds me of my so, grandma. Did she used to say over and out? Yeah, she she um, lived in the in the outback, uh, Western Australian outback. She and my grandfather had a sheep station, and she worked for School of the Air, so she was always on her little radio, over and out. <laughs> did they have telephone t- telephonic? Communication with the phone lines hooked up then, or it was, was all by radio? Radio, yeah, it was radio. I think later on they switched over to phones, but I have this. I have very uh, strong memories of her on the little radio machine. It's crazy. Brilliant. Yeah. So you grew up in Western Australia, of course. You're now living in New York City. What's that like at the moment in the the, the grasp of this horrible pandemic? Do you feel safe? Well, I'm probably not the best person to ask because I've fled. Oh, well, that's sensible. <laughs> um, which actually most of my friends did. I, um, I had some, some very good friends who predicted that something was going to go down. Uh, and they, uh, they're very fortunate and that they, I'm very fortunate. They invited me up to um, a home that they have in Vermont. So it was literally the day that Broadway got shut down that they said, all right, let's get out of here. So three families plus myself um, hopped in cars. I rented a car and we chugged on up to Vermont. So we're about four hours north of New York City. And I'm hearing a lot of mixed reports from people who stayed behind. There, there are those people who you know, are diehard New Yorkers who just think, you know, although it's it's pretty awful what's happening out in Queens, which is the epicenter, 
um, of it all and the hospitals are overrun there. My friends in Manhattan um, are not really seeing that side of it. And the worst that's happening is that they're having to wear face masks and be six feet apart from each other. But it's that the, one of them just thinks it's so great to have stayed there and like, you know, waited it out. And they really feel like they're getting their, they're paying their New York City dues and people that they look at and smile behind their masks on the screen. They have this great moment of connection, which I understand is, um, you know, a pretty, pretty valid thing. But then I have friends who, who have small kids and they'll take, take the kids out to the park or whatever. And not everyone's wearing face masks and not everyone is socially distancing. And um, there seems to be a lack of awareness that, that the virus is still a big problem. So most of my friends have fled the city. Uh, and I, you were I, smart, I, smart to do that. I mean, it, were you fearful on that day? It sounds like a, a scene from The Walking Dead. You know, where you <laughs> pile up everything and then just move to higher I, ground. I kept referencing the sound of music. <laughs> like were, of course you did. Yeah, like we're starting the car without the headlights on. and um, Yeah, because no one knew what it was going to be like. And um, I had one friend who was predicting riots in New York, and thank God it never came to that. But there was definitely a lot of fear. And I don't think anyone predicted that New York would be the epicenter of it uh, just a couple of weeks later. And, you know, most of us live in tiny apartments in New York as well. We don't have outdoor space. We have a little bit of sunlight, not much. And so I feel very blessed to have been invited by my friends to get out because I think, you know, eight weeks, I live alone too. So eight weeks in my, in my small apartment in New York with very little, um, if any, social interaction with anyone um, wouldn't have been great for the old mental state. Yeah. My full realisation of that, I think I, I was in uh, New York one of my first times and I thought oh, it was in the summer and I thought, how wonderful, all these people gather in parks of an evening just to sort of communicate. Yeah. And then a friend said, well, they have to get out of their apartment. They go mad yeah, otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's so great. I mean, look, New York in, in the best of times in the summer is just my favourite it's my favorite time to be there. And people, people lie out sunbathing in Central Park, like they're at the beach. Mm. <laughs> and you'll bring your picnics and your, um, you know, your bottles of alcohol that you hide in your esky. And, no, it's great. It's just a, a wonderful thing. But it's, Central Park is everyone's backyard. And um, that's, that's still the case. But now we, ha we have to be so much more diligent about keeping healthy. One of the most devastating effects, I mean, there's many, but um, the the premature decline of Broadway, um, it's, you know, a place that depends on the tourist trade and um, a, a gathering of a large amount of people in a small space. Uh, you know, when do you think we might see Broadway opening again? Yeah, it's, it is devastating. Um, and especially now we're starting to hear about shows that are giving their closing notice. You know, I think for the last two months, people have had their fingers crossed that, that we'll open up sooner rather than later and shows will get back to normal, but they just announced that Frozen wouldn't open back up. And there were a few plays that had announced they wouldn't be opening, but this was the first musical. And this is a Disney musical and a successful musical. So 
you know, unfortunately, I think it may be the first of many casualties. And the word on the street is that nothing's going to open back up until 2021, even though they've officially said September. I think that unless a vaccine miraculously uh, is found <laughs> like in the next four months, um, I think people are not going to be ready to to gather in 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 those kinds of venues. And I I also think you know we have to we have to be mindful of what we're asking casts to do and and companies. Um, you know, theater is a very intimate business and you can't have actors be standing six feet apart on a stage. I mean, unless it's some very <laughs> uh, left centerpiece. So I think it's probably going to be January at the earliest, um, but more likely spring, our spring, which is this time next year. Well, that's certainly the feeling in Australia. Also, we've had lots of shows cancelled and, you know, some of our um, most prominent producers have all said that, yes, there won't be anything until 2021, which is very sad. Very sad. So did you grow up in Perth or was it uh, an outer suburb of uh, a town of Western Australia? I did grow up in Perth. I was south of the river in a little suburb called Bateman. What do you miss about um, Perth and WA? Oh, well, I miss my family, of course. Uh, yeah. they're, all, they're, they're no longer in Bateman, but they're just outside of Perth City and they all live within a five-minute walk of each other um, with my parents, my brother and his family, and my sister and his family. So I just miss being close to them. I miss the weather. Oh, I miss the weather so much. Isn't it glorious? I mean, as you know, I lived there for three years and uh, the, the climate is extraordinary. You'd finish class and you could run down and have a swim at the beach in May. Oh, yeah. oh and, you know, I thought that was normal. Didn't No one ever <laughs> told me that that wasn't the way that everyone lives their lives, enjoying that much sunshine. Um, so, yes, I, I miss the beaches so much. I miss that sunshine. And even in the winter, there's something special about the light. In The light is extraordinary. Hence, you know, the, the um, uh, prominence of so many visual artists from Western Australia. Yeah, yeah. Makes Use the light sense. beautifully, yeah. I've been looking at your website in the lead up to this conversation and I love that uh, you have the, the redhead matches logo. <laughs> <laughs> so um, prominently there, you know, a very uh, iconic Australian um, yeah, image. Right. That's right. Yep, my little nod to my my Australianness. You've written a song uh, quite recently. I mean, this is this is fresh off the boat. This is one of uh, this is your most recent, I guess, called Literally. Approaching Australia. Yep, I wrote it um, three days ago. <laughs> I think uh, one of my quarantine creations. Uh, my friend Mindy Dickstein, who is a wonderful um, book writer and lyricist, she actually wrote the lyrics for Little Women, the Broadway musical. Um, she and I have started musicalizing the story of the first all-female sailing crew to take part in the Whitbread Round the World sailing race. And uh, there's most recently been a documentary called Maiden, which I highly recommend. It's a fantastic documentary. And one of the, the song moments that stood out for us as we've been figuring out how to translate it to the stage 
was when the women were on the second leg of this race, sailing from Uruguay, and they spent many, many days on the Southern Ocean, which is a notoriously dangerous place to sail. Uh, one, of the, one of their um, competing boats actually lost a sailor overboard. Um, so it's very dangerous. Uh, and they, you know, forget the competition. I mean, they just were trying to survive, but they obviously on the whole, through the whole race, were trying to prove that women in fact could sail as well as, if not better than men. So they had that sort of hanging over them as well. So at the end of this leg, they were sailing into Fremantle, which I found a marvelous coincidence because Fremantle is 15 minutes from the suburb of Bateman where I grew up. Um, and, and the women said they, even when they couldn't see Australia, they could smell Australia. They knew they were approaching it. They could smell the eucalyptus trees. They, they saw that the light shifted, the water calmed. And I just thought, well, if that's not a song moment, then I don't know what is. <laughs> so I talked to my collaborator, Mindy, and she wrote some beautiful lyrics, which I, I set to music. You can smell the earth. You can smell the blades of grass, eucalyptus in the air. The crashing waves are gone, the sea a pane of glass, the horror has subsided. And though you cannot see it, the truth is plain to see, Australia is to create 
Fantastic, Carmel. Up-tempo and uh, very patriotic and, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Is it difficult to set a show on the ocean? Because does a lot, are you envisioning that a lot of this show will take place on the ocean? Yeah, I think it has to, seeing as um, they, <laughs> the crews spent months and months and months at sea and that's what, um, you know, what was so incredible about their journey. I think if we find the right director, I think there is... Um, such incredible potential to make it highly theatrical with maybe even a bare minimum set. And nowadays, of course, projections are a big part of um, design. So I think projections could really be our friend yeah. too. That's not your issue, is it? That's up to the director. Well, that's exactly right. Let me write the song. <laughs> What did, what did your play consist of as a child? Did, was, did you create all the time? Were you an explorer? I was a classical piano nerd. <laughs> so I was practicing a lot. I was a Suzuki piano kid. Um, so I, you know, pretty diligent. My parents were, were wonderfully supportive and encouraging. So um, I, I spent a lot of time at the piano, but I also loved riding my bike around, loved the beach, loved roller skating. I mean, you know, I, was, I think I was a fairly typical Aussie kid. I was outside a lot. I, I remember, um, uh, you know, I, I made friends with all the, the neighborhood kids and there was one Halloween where I, you know, I was obsessed with American culture, even as a 10 year old. And I thought, why don't we celebrate Halloween here? I'm going to change things. So I wrote letters to everyone in the, on the street and say, saying, so the neighborhood kids will be coming around on October 31st. Please be prepared with candy <laughs> to hand out. So, you know, I, I was outdoors a lot, you know, uh, stirring, up, stirring up trouble. You'd be delighted to hear, I don't know if you've caught up with the news, but one of my favourite chocolate bars was a polywaffle. And uh, they've been yeah. off the shelves for many years, but they're, they're being reintroduced uh, later this year. What? I love yeah. the polywaffle. <laughs> oh, well, I'll send you over some. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> How old were you when you sat at a piano for the first time? I was three. Wow. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and you say so you started lessons then, or did I started taking see... lessons at three and a half. Yeah, um, they they'd had a piano in the house, obviously, um, and my parents were big music lovers. Um, my great aunt, so my mother's aunt, 
was a fantastic pianist. She was based in Melbourne um, and she would come over to visit. And I, I have many photos of me just looking up at her wide eyed, being enthralled. She actually used to play for silent films, which, wow. you know, obviously is a job that no longer exists, but it's very cool. But, but what a skill, you know, to, to match oh, yeah. what you're playing to what's on the screen. Incredible. Yeah. yeah, just incredible. Would they have had so that that would have scores written especially for those films? I suppose. Um, I feel like you know. I don't. I was never able to talk to her about it. She passed right. away before I really got to have those conversations with her. But in my mind, I think she was improvising, and I don't know why I think that. But no. I'm sure there's someone who has more more info. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an incredible skill, though. So I guess music education figured prominently at school. Yes, very much so. Um, I I ended up not just studying piano in primary school, but also viola and clarinet. And then I auditioned for Perth Modern School for high school, which was um, the big music scholarship program, um, which was an it had an unbelievable music uh, music music education um, syllabus. And unfortunately, they no longer are a music specialty school. They're an academic specialty school. But Celia Christmas and Jane Brearley were my incredible teachers. And I believe Celia is still at Perth Mod. So those kids uh, have been benefiting um, for many, many years. But yeah, I, I, I was a big music, music kid. What, what a fantastic name, Miss Christmas. Oh, Miss Christmas. She was the best. <laughs> every every household seems to have a um, a collection of cast recordings from original Broadway shows. Perhaps what were the cast recordings that were existed in your house? Oh, I had all of them. Well, it's funny. Before I discovered musical theatre, I my 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 only knowledge of I guess shows and show tunes were like Sound of Music because I'd seen the movie. Um, West Side Story, because my parents had the record. And my dad had hair, had the LP of hair. And so I was 14 when the national tour came through Perth. And that was either the first or second show that I ever saw, a musical that I saw. We used to go to the ballet a lot, we'd go to symphonies, but I'd never been to a musical. I say first or second because my aunt also took me up to a production of King and I right around at the same time. So I can't remember the timeline. Um, but that, that sort of opened up this whole new world of fascination for me. And, you know, as soon as I was able to drive, I would take myself to all the secondhand CD shops and just buy up every single cast album, even though I'd never heard of them. And I just, I was so proud of my CD collection, just these random cast recordings. Um, but I just, I devoured them. And, Bri- and that's giving you a reference point to a whole range of styles and, and composers and, and, and narratives that no doubt feed into your, your appreciation of the, of the musical theatre right. form today. Yeah. yeah, that's right. What about amateur theatre involvement? Were you involved in community groups and uh, yeah. on, well, on stage or in the pit? A bit of both, actually. Oh, wow. And I have to say, amateur theatre was probably the thing that changed my my trajectory in my life the most. Um, So I ended up going to Perth Mod for my first three years of high school, and then I switched to Penrose College, which had an unbelievable theatre and music program. And I met 
uh, who, someone who be, who's become a dear, dear friend, uh, my music teacher, Andrea Stimson, and she was very heavily involved in the um, amateur musical theater scene in Perth. So she took me under her wing and I ended up being the, so her associate music director on a couple of things. And one of the most meaningful productions that I took part in was Side by Side by Sondheim. And I played piano two and Tim Cunniff was music director in piano one. And I just fell in love with the entire thing. I mean, with obviously with the community, um, but with the music. And I only knew Stephen Sondheim as the lyricist to West Side Story. So suddenly I had this whole world of Sondheim music open up to me. And it was really pretty mind-blowing. Um, and I... I, I then just basically signed on for every amateur production I could find, um, mostly as a assistant music director or music director. But there was one production at Play Lovers where I ended up on the stage in the ensemble, uh, and it was chess. Wow. So, yeah, I, I do have some photos of myself as a Murano schoolgirl <laughs> from well, when <laughs> not a bad score to sing. Oh, it was fantastic. Oh, it was just, it was so much fun. And again, just meeting a whole new community of people and discovering this new genre was so thrilling. And that's what, what actually led me to switch gears. Um, I had been studying classical piano at UWA and it just dawned on me that my heart wasn't in it the way it used to be. And musical theater was something I was falling madly in love with, but both the, the community aspect of it and the collaborative nature of it and the actual music and the repertoire. And so that's when I went to Dennis Follington and asked if, if there was anything I could do over at WAPA. Dennis, of course, was uh, running the music theater course at WAPA at the time, I guess. That's right. Yep. This was um, the end of 97 that I went and spoke to him um, and he, I mean, he literally just opened, opened his door and opened this whole new world for me and said, sure, transfer over to the con, which is where Whopper is. Um, you can come play for all the music theater rep classes. You can play for song and dance. You can play for performance prac. Um, you can play in the pit of the shows. And I really just had the greatest education because he said yes to me and was so generous. So one of the reasons for talking to you today is, of course, to, to discuss your brilliant career. But, you know, in the, in the world of theatre and performance, there's not any particular one pathway, is there, to success? It's, it can be a whole lot of happy accidents. That's exactly right. Yeah, I don't think... Besides knowing that I really wanted to get to New York and, and be in America, I mean, I, I, I didn't know anything other than that and I didn't know what my path would look like. You know, it's, I think it's, it's all about knowing what you want and being open to opportunities and saying yes to things and asking for things. That's been the, the best lesson that I've learned. And I always tell that to the younger kids that I speak to. Don't be afraid to ask for things because there is no one way of getting, getting there. But you never know who can help you and who you can help at the same time. True. Well, one of the big turning points in your career, I think, came about through asking 
Uh, you were at um, NYU studying musical theatre composition, was it? Writing? That's right, yeah. It's a and graduate musical theatre writing program. And one of your professors was William Finn, the great William Finn, who has written you know, A New Brain and Falsettos and 25th County Annual County. I still trip over that. <laughs> <laughs> 25th annual County Spelling Bee. <laughs> the Spelling Bee show. Um, yeah. But you, you, he was one of your professors and you approached him with, with a suggestion one day. That's right. Uh, I just, uh, not even a suggestion, I just offered to help him. Um, I, I had heard that he often used his students to help notate and basically sort of exist as, a, as an assistant. And I had... Um, been so fortunate to meet Max Lambert during my time at WAPA and he, and I had ended up doing a little bit of notation and transcription for him. So I didn't even know it really was a, a marketable skill until then. Um, but gorgeous Max also, you know, who's been so important to me, um, taught me that. So I thought, well, if, if Bill Finn needs people, I, I'm here. I would love to work with him. I'd love to learn from him. So I just volunteered my, my time and my services. And once again, like one of the best things I ever did because he ended up calling me a couple of weeks later and, you know, here we are almost 20 years later and we still talk at least once a week and, and have been working together ever since. So uh, can I just back to Max? I, I think after you left WAPA, you worked for the Sydney Olympics for a little bit yes. on that team. That must have been exciting and a, and oh a different sort of skill set. It still feels like it was a dream. I mean, look, just being in Sydney at that time was incredible, um, as I'm sure, you know, everyone who was there will remember. It was this 24-hour party for a couple of weeks. I mean, even the, the time leading up to it just felt like such a celebration um, of of Australian culture and Australian people. And um, it was so wonderful to walk down the street and just strike up conversation with people from anywhere around the world who'd come to visit. And there were these giant TV screens set up where people could watch the events and bars on the street um, serving drinks. And um, so it was just a beautiful time to be in Sydney. But of course, leading up to that, Max had taken me under his wing and, um, I, I ended up working in his tiny, tiny music department for the Olympics. He literally had four people, including himself and me, um, working on the opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympic Games, which is just crazy when you think about it. I mean, there was so much music to organize. Um, there were so many arrangements that needed to be redone and re like timed out for different things. And, uh, I, you know, I was, I think I was 21, 20, yeah, I must have been 21. And I was emailing people in America to get permission to use, to, to use songs for the Olympic Games. Like, I didn't even know how I knew how to use email at that point, because it was a very, it was the early days. So, you know, I was, I was doing all kinds of things that I never thought I'd be doing. Um, I was also playing rehearsals. I, I remember playing piano for Nikki Webster a few times and like being standing next to Olivia Newton-John at some point and just thinking, what, where am I? What is happening? This is incredible. Um, but just learning from Max, you know, as everyone who knows him is just, um, it's such a gift. He's such a generous spirit 
an incredible artist and I learned so much in those, I'd, I'd say, four months that we worked together. NYU, how did that appear on the horizon? You, uh, you, you decide that um, I really want to pursue this musical composition aspect of my career? Or? Well, I actually ended up at NYU after I had spent a semester at Arizona State University. <laughs> um, so while I was in my final year at WAPA, I saw an ad on one of the notice boards for a Fulbright scholarship. And I believe the headline was, do you want to study in America? Question mark. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so I just, you know, put my head down and put an application together and um, was fortunate enough to receive it. And at that time, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a music director. And there were only two places to study that in America at a master's level. One was in Florida and then the other was in Arizona. And the Arizona program just seemed to be, be a better fit for what I wanted to do. So I got accepted into uh, the Arizona State master's program. And I loved it. I loved every second. And I'm still great friends with a lot of the people I met then. But I was about halfway through the semester and I thought, why am I in Arizona? Why aren't I in New York? And I have a two-year student visa and this is going to be up and I'm going to have to turn around and go back to Australia. It seems crazy that I'm not in New York. So I did some quick investigation as to what programs um, I could apply for at a very sort of last minute um, <laughs> pace. And I found this musical theater writing program at NYU. And it was probably in April of 2001 that I sent them an email. I said, look, uh, here's my situation. I, I know I've missed the cutoff, but is there any chance I could send in a late application? I'm a composer. And they said, actually, yes, we still have one spot for, for a composer beginning this fall, which was September. Um, so, you know, again, like ask for what you want. You just never know what the answer is going to be. So I sent in an application and I got accepted. And then I, I ended up moving to New York in September, 2001, which was an auspicious time. Yep. So, but that was the beginning of my two year master's program at NYU. So what, what sort of subjects do you study in a, in a course like that? Are you looking at things like playwriting as well? And Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's very, it's obviously very, very specifically geared towards uh, musicals and, and Broadway. Um, but, but we would, the class was broken down into words people and music people. And there were a few who would do both and cross over. Um, so a lot of the classes were specific to um, just the composers, just the words people um but we would study uh, book writing playwriting um we would study form we would go way way back and study things like the black crook and gilbert and sullivan um we would study orchestration and of course being in new york we have access to people who are out in the industry working every day and people like william finn um, and we had Michael John Lacusa come in a lot. He's on faculty. Incredible Broadway producers would come speak to us. We just had access to the people who were on the ground. So it was, uh, you know, they just provided a wealth of information. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the, the benefit of studying in New York is yeah. that you're right there in the middle of it. 
Well, you finish a course like that, and then you have the opportunity to begin work on the Putnam County Spelling Bee. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that was I was pretty pretty lucky um, timing wise because right when I graduated, I'd I'd done a few little projects for Bill Finn, just helping him transcribe things, and um, another not so little project, which was his song cycle called Elegies which ended up having a production at Lincoln Center, and I was the associate music director for that. But he, he then said to me, I'm writing this show about kids at a spelling bee. Uh, come over and I'll play you some songs. And so, you know, I'm sitting in his bedroom where his piano is, and he's playing me these songs, and he said, okay, I need you to take, the, take this down, you know, so I would notate it. And he's like, oh, but uh, there are six, six kids are meant to be singing right here. So can you add some harmonies for these six kids? And I thought, well, okay, well, I mean, never really done that before, but I'll figure it out. I mean, harmony is like, you know, studied harmony writing in, um, in my undergrad classical piano course. Uh, how hard can it be? And I just kind of, I winged it, I guess. I, I ended up sort of falling into this role of vocal arranger for Spelling Bee and Bill liked my work and, you know, I realized it was really fun to take a melody and to expand it for multiple voices and also get to contribute to the theatricality of the piece. It's not just about writing harmonies and building a chord, but you actually get to build personality into the music which with each of the characters. So it was a great happy accident that, I, that he asked me to do that. And that's to this day, one of my favorite things to do is write vocal arrangements. How exciting that, that Spelling Bee has gone on to have such an extraordinary life. Still today, it's produced by community theatres and schools all over the world. Everywhere. Yeah, really is great. And I think that just speaks to what a wonderful piece it is and its universal, universal, universe, universality. Thank you. <laughs> universality. <laughs> um, it's, it really is something that everyone can relate to. Yeah, we don't have Spelling Bees in Australia, um, or at least I'd, I'd never seen, seen one growing up or experienced one. Um, but, but I knew what these kids felt like, you know, I was always in piano contests as a kid. So I knew what it was like to be in a competition and to feel awkward and to have to figure out how to relate to strangers, my own age and perform. The pressure. The pressure. Let's listen to some more music from Carmel Dean. This is uh, from Renaissance, which is a production that we'll talk about a little bit later in the conversation in more detail, but it's a number called Travel. Do you want to set that up for us? Yeah, so um, the show Renaissance is comprised of lyrics by the American poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. So all of the songs in the show are poems of hers that I set to music. And, and that provided a great challenge in writing a whole musical because obviously it's, uh, you're not writing songs for specific moments. The songs already exist. And it was, uh, you know, I like to call it the, uh, my art song jukebox musical. <laughs> so I had written, I'd written a bunch of songs and travel was one of them. And when Dick Scanlon and I were trying to figure out the best way of telling the story of Vincent, um, which is what, how, she's, how she was known. We knew we really wanted to portray her 
as um, this feisty go-getter, um, very ambitious. And we thought this would be a great way of setting up her story. So this takes place at the very beginning of the show. And the interesting thing about Vincent throughout her life was that she, she really looked back. She was always looking forward and she always had, um, she always had goals and aspirations and she was very, very successful. And yet she was very, very close to her mother and two sisters who stayed behind in rural Maine. And she ended up spending most of her life in New York city. So there's this duality between uh, being on the go and having your heart um, you know, belong back at home, which I think I can relate to in many ways. So travel is basically about um, Vincent wanting to uh, go out and see the world. The railroad track is miles away And the day is loud with voices speaking Yet there isn't a train goes by all day but I hear its whistle shrieking All night there isn't a train goes by Though the night is still for sleep and dreaming But I see its cinders red on the sky And hear its engine steaming I wouldn't take No matter where it's going Oh 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 Somewhere in the middle of nowhere Someone is writing a poem It may change their life it may destroy mine. It may make them the voice of their generation, which may be forgotten by generations to come. But come what may, the poem that someone is writing will be unlike any poem the world has ever known. There isn't a train I wouldn't take. No matter where it's going. There we go, the extraordinary travel from Renaissance. And we heard Michaela Bennett, Hannah Corneau, Jason Gautet, Danny Harris-Kornfeld, Katie Thompson, and Donald Weber Jr. What an extraordinary company that you had for that show. Oh, I was so lucky. They really were stellar. So uh, musical direction, of course. You've been at the helm of uh, about four Broadway musicals. Did you ever think that was going to happen when you are at Play Lovers, singing in chess? <laughs> Murano, Murano. Um, no, oh goodness, no. I don't think I was thinking that far ahead or that, you know, that um, ambitiously. I knew I wanted to be doing it, knew I wanted to be a part of it, but I don't think I knew what that looked like. Um, it probably wasn't until I was in New York that I really honed in on that vision. 
What's um, the hardest thing about being a musical director or perhaps the most challenging thing? Ooh, oh, there are many things. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's really hard maintaining the show. Uh, and I'm fortunate that I've, I've been involved in a lot of long running shows. Um, a year, well, I was going to say a year is the longest for myself as a music director, although Spelling Bee, um, for which I was the associate music director, ran for three years. For me personally, I, I find the sameness difficult, which I know a lot of people do. So it's about infusing uh, the music and my quote unquote performance um, and just my, my energy with something that um, makes it interesting, not just for myself, but for everyone I'm working with. Because obviously there are orchestra members looking up at me and I, I, I can't zone out, you know, I need to keep it fresh. So that, that's a challenge, but it's also hard. The beginning process of new musicals there are so many changes flying at you left, right, and center. And directors move very quickly. They have to because of time, time constraints. And there are often so many changes to put in before a certain time <laughs> that you, you know, you're, you're often literally juggling new score pages coming in and new script pages and um, pasting in cuts in your own score and having to make sure that the players have all seen what the change is before that preview tonight and reminding the singer that the lyrics have changed for the second verse. And, you know, this, it, you, you just, no matter how stressful it is, you can't let that show. Um, and so I'm often having inner meltdowns. <laughs> but on the outside just trying to remain calm and that's very hard that's i mean luckily i think my temperament is i'm fairly laid back um so i think i've been well suited to a lot of those stressful moments in the process but are you a, a are you a puzzle person do you enjoy yeah. jigsaw puzzles and love and them do my daily crossword every morning love the jigsaws Wow, because a lot of that comes into being an MD, I suppose. You're talking about ensuring that everybody knows where you are and fitting it all together and adapting, yeah, changing. That's and that, and actually, I'd never even made that analogy, but that's, that's very accurate. I often um, compare writing lyrics to doing puzzles. Um, but I think, yes, being a music director, and especially when you're working on a brand new show, there are a lot of things to be juggling. So that, that says a lot about the brain, I think, of, of a musician. Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, it's very satisfying completing a puzzle, but you have to want to <laughs> complete it and stick it out. Do you have a routine when you arrive at the theatre on a performance night? Uh, are you superstitious? Do you make sure that you uh, use the same baton each time? Or <laughs> Well, I only have one baton, so I'm, I am always using that baton. Um, when I did If Then... Um, which was the last show I conducted on Broadway, I would wear red lipstick religiously. Uh, and I hadn't done that on any other show before. Although in American Idiot, I was wearing costumes, so I think my, my lipstick was part of it. But I was just wearing regular conducting blacks for If Then, but I had to wear lipstick every night. And that felt great. Um, one of the things, actually, that I that I would do, it wasn't a routine, but I I did it on a fairly regular basis. Um, and this was to keep my sanity as well as the uh, the sanity of the players in the band. I would have themed orchestra 
days. So we would have, for example, French Friday. <laughs> so <laughs> like, people would wear their berets and someone brought in a book of Tintin and, you know, would hold it up and read it out to everyone. And someone had a baguette on the music stand. Um, you know, so doing things like that, not so much in a routine, but they were the things that, um, that kept us going. Keeping it fresh and long runs. Yeah. Looking, looking forward to going to work for that slight change. Yeah. Yeah. And so, don't get me wrong. I always felt very lucky to be there and de- definitely valued, um, the experience, but yeah. it's that, that double-edged sword of just trying to keep it. Well, it requires a specific discipline. It's like performers too, you know, who are in long runs and they know that at quarter past nine every night, they're going to be exiting on that wing and it's going to be that costume change. They're going to pass that actor when they come back. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Working on American Idiot, had you had much exposure to the heavy rock genre? Because that would test a a different set of skills, I guess. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Look, I was very familiar with Green Day because um, Dookie came out when I was in high school. So I knew Green Day and I loved their music. But I I really was, like I said, a classical music nerd. And I, I've, although Hair was one of my favorite musicals, that was kind of as rocky as I got as a kid. Um, so when I was asked to, to MD American Idiot, I thought, wow, um, I love Green Day. I mean, I'm not really rock and roll person but I'll figure out how to do it and I just I I crammed I listened to that album on repeat before I had to get into the rehearsal room and I thought that I never listened to rock music but I just I hadn't worked in that genre before so it was a little bit of a um, baptism by fire and I think um, getting to play that music every night for a year was an incredible masterclass in in learning how to play groove and keep time and um, be authentic stylistically. Tell me about the Disney experience of uh, the reality show where you would uh, return to, I think you went to Flint, Michigan to restage The Sound of Music. That's right. It was such a beautiful week. That whole thing only took place in a week. Um, Those (laughs) <laughs> Those poor adults only had five days to learn the sound of music and then perform it. Um, so the, con- the concept is that, that you returned, it was, it was a high school production and you returned some years later to remount it with the same, right. same kids all grown up. Concept. Yeah, fantastic concept. So um, it's essentially a reunion show, but it's kids who are now adults reuniting to remount their high school musical and a professional music director and director and choreographer are brought in from New York to work with these now adults. So I was sent to Flint, Michigan to help teach these adults the sound of music. And it was just so wonderful because for the first time ever uh, mounting a musical, the stakes were, were so different. You know, this was not about doing a show and having it be the most polished thing and making sure that, you know, it was as as good as it could be because the review reviewer from the New York times was going to come. This was just about these adults, a getting to spend time with each other and people they hadn't seen in 25 years. Um, and B watching them prove to themselves that they could do something like very few of these adults are actually still singing and dancing. 
So, you know, it'd be like giving, giving me the task for the day of being an EMT. It's like, I don't know if I could and should be doing this, but I'm just going to see what I can do with this first aid course and see what happens. Um, so it was a, it's a wonderful concept. And um, I think it's been pretty successful. I think the ratings have been pretty great. When you um, MD a show, are you able to um, uh, continue composing at the same time? I would imagine that you've got two scores in your head which would sort of be uh, in conflict with each other. Yeah, I've never been able to do it. Um, and that's why after If Then I sort of <laughs> declared that I was stepping down from music directing because I just thought I, I'm never going to write anything if I keep, keep um, committing to projects as an MD. Um, I, it's something that I would like to get better at is doing both because I, I honestly love doing both at once, but there is something about my brain not being able to be in two places at once. Um, I'm very happy right now in, in quarantine in Vermont, really just focusing on my own writing projects. I'm not, I don't have to use my music directing brain and it just feels it feels really safe and really manageable and not stressful my heart is what it was before a house where people come and go but it is winter with your love the sashes are beset with snow Then take your medicine. 
Oh, that's a beautiful track, Carmel. Um, it's about Vincent and her father, I believe. That's right. That's right. Um, Vincent's father actually left her family when the, Vincent and her sister were, were young girls. Um, her mother actually kicked him out, um, which never happened. We're talking the late 1800s. Um, so it was quite scandalous. And um, Vincent was the oldest sibling and she really felt his loss as independent as they all were and as close as the three girls and their mother were. I think not having a father really impacted her. So um, throughout the show, we had these moments where the father would reappear and she would have these imaginary conversations with him and talk about how her writing was going. And, and she would question why he was no longer a part of her life. So this is one of these interactions. I love that you uh, fondly describe the show as your art song jukebox musical. <laughs> because, because that's what you're doing. You're taking that poetry and then you and Dick Scanlon, I guess, are working out ways in which to interpret, interpolate the, uh, the poems into um, the narrative of her story. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. very challenging. Dick Scanlon is brilliant in that he, he actually figured out that renaissance the the epic poem would be uh the thread of the story i had not set that poem to music when i first took my other songs to him so it was about the creation of that poem and how that changed her life that became the crux of the entire show what was the first song you ever wrote you know i didn't write that many songs as a kid um uh I didn't even know if I ever wrote a song with words. I, I remember writing a couple of classical pieces for competitions um, or school assignments. I set a couple of poems for my English lit assignments in, in uh, high school, but I really didn't know that I loved writing until I decided I needed to be in New York and go to the NYU writing program. So it's something that came later in life. And um, I actually didn't even start writing my own lyrics until a couple of years ago, which is why Renaissance is all poetry. Um, because at that point, I wasn't writing my, my own words. I was looking for words in other places. Had you been working on a piece called Vincent as far back as, as Whopper and, and University Time? Yeah, I actually did a reading. It was after I'd graduated, but I went back. Um, David King very kindly invited me back to do a reading of the show. This was before Dick Scanlon was on board. And it was at that point, I was calling it a song cycle. I think I had probably 14 songs. I started writing these songs back in 2001. So <laughs> talk about a long gestation for well, yeah, the gestation period of musicals can be decades, can't it? Yeah, it's, just, it's just crazy. I mean, it really is crazy. <laughs> I think on average it takes a musical seven years to get to Broadway. 
Who are the music theatre writers who inspire and thrill you? Mm. Well, obviously Sondheim. Uh, he's the biggest. Um, I adore Adam Gettle's music. I just think it's so lush and beautiful and unique. Um, I'm a big fan of Jason Robert Brown's. Uh, I love Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart, Cole Porter. Um, you know, the, all these are the goodies. Yeah. Love Candor and Ebb. Uh, I love Cy Coleman. Yeah. Field. Yeah, yeah. They're all spectacular for different reasons, aren't they? That's right. Yeah. I mean, so such different different sounds. And Tom Kitt, who's a, a great friend and collaborator, is someone I admire greatly. You would have to have an incredible knowledge of instruments to craft a score. Do you? Well, yes and. <laughs> um, well, how it works in the New York scene is that you will very often write a score for uh, voices and piano and then hire an unbelievable orchestrator, which I was very fortunate to be able to do for Renaissance, um, Michael Sterebin, um, who has become a great friend. Um, and he's a Tony, Tony Award win, winning orchestrator. He orchestrated, it's orchestrated for Stephen Sondheim, among other greats. Um, so I also feel like I stay in my lane, so to speak. And I will just, I trust him so much that I was able to just give him my piano vocal scores and say, okay, work your magic. You, there's no one who, who can expand the score um, the way that you will do it. I guess the, the selection of the key that you're going to write in also is imperative because that gives the, the character a particular tone or, or, or voice. That's right. Yep, that's right. And that's something that I do as a composer. Um, uh, and depending on who you're casting, um, it was interesting. I, the, the amazing woman who played Vincent, her name's Hannah Corneau, um, she walked in and as soon as she opened her mouth, I thought, oh, well, this is our Vincent. But I had never, we, we'd done a few workshops with different people playing the character before and, and Hannah's voice was so extraordinary that I ended up raising the key for, for many of her songs. And that doesn't happen often. You know, you're usually writing in a key that's very ambitious and then bringing it down for the reality. Um, but Hannah just has this incredible, you know, high tessitura and very unique, very, very beautiful and unique sound. Um, so yeah, we, you know, that's, that's the fun part to me is, is making the song fit, fit the actor. Do you have a favorite time of the day that you like to write? Are you disciplined in that you get up and you think, right, from seven till midday, I'm going to write and then I'll have lunch. Oh, I wish yeah. I was waking up at seven. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I look, my, my, my quote unquote discipline is starting with a cup of coffee, doing the New York times crossword puzzle. Then I feel like my brain's in gear. Um, and I'm, I'm always better doing my work in the first half of the day. I mean, once, once it hits like five, six o'clock, it's cocktail time and then forget it. Um, I'm definitely better when the sun is out. Let's have a listen to, this is, this is the, the, the culminating moments of uh, Renaissance, the, the, the title poem from the, your musical, the title song. Um, it does go for 19 minutes though. Uh, tell me about the the challenge of setting a, a huge poem like that to music. Well, yes, challenge it was for sure. Um, we knew we wanted to end the musical with this epic poem. Um, 
not just because it was the, the basis of her whole journey that we were telling, but also because it was, it's epic. Um, and we thought we need to do something special with this. Um, and so we actually ended up staging it. Uh, we reversed the theater. So there was a very brief intermission where the, the audience all left their seats and moved up onto the stage. Uh, and we're able to sort of, I guess, sit inside of this big poem. So, so that was, you know, there were many challenges to, to choosing to <laughs> put a 19 minute poem or song in the show. But when we, when I first set it, I actually set an abridged version. I ended up striking out a lot of the, the verses. I thought, well, no one's ever going to want to sit through this whole thing. And we did it uh, in one of the workshops and um, Jack Cummings, who was the co-director of the show, and Dick Scanlon, um, both encouraged me to set the whole thing. And they said, look, we'll figure out how to make it compelling. That's our job as the directors. So I did. I went away and, I mean, it took months to do this. And I think I made it extra hard for myself because I decided I wanted to reference every other song from the show within that big 19 minute song. So it was like a massive puzzle. And it was like, when I cracked a piece, it was just so thrilling. So I'm like, oh my God, okay. I know like this music is gonna work on this section. And that was, the, that was when the character of Mother sang this earlier in the show. That's, it's a, it's a complimentary lyric. So it was a, a giant puzzle. And in the end, it ended up being a 19 minute song. And I, I got to, have six incredible voices just sort of go to town <laughs> with it. And as I looked, a quick name gust
You're you restri uh, not restricted, you're restrained by having to also honour the, the rhythm and metre of the original poetry as well, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, although as I was doing it, I don't think I ever felt... I mean, I'm sure, yes, it was challenging at times, but um, the poems that I selected for the show, I actually selected... They weren't just randomly chosen. Like, I I not only selected them for the for their emotional content and... Um, for for moments that I thought I would be able to connect to as a as a person and as a writer, but I would look at the structure of them and I, I you know if the if they weren't particularly symmetrical um, and if they weren't broken down into different sections, I thought this this is going to be too hard. I don't know how to set this to music. Um, and you know, obviously they're it's they're not they're not all written as lyrics, um, but I found that. Malay has a lot of lyricism in her poetry. And when when I couldn't find those moments and I was already setting the, the poem, I would add space in the music by adding oohs and ahs and little vocalises. So I figured out little tricks to um, help myself get out of get out of corners. <laughs> now I hope this doesn't embarrass you, but I found a quote by Janine Tesori. Uh, it seems fitting that Carmel Dean would launch her composing career by aligning with Edna St. Vincent Millay. To hear the marriage of these two voices, brave, exacting, determined, is to hear the musical illumination of the poetry and the poetics of the music. Carmel's score is glorious. If only Vincent could hear it, at least we can. Oh, that's incredible. You must have been chuffed by that. I couldn't believe it. I, I really couldn't believe it. I mean, she's, she's, she's so wonderful and um, one of my idols and to have her <laughs> say such beautiful things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm embarrassed. Malay, Malay wrote Renaissance uh, apparently while looking out from the summit of Mount Batty in Camden in Maine. Have you been yeah. there? I haven't been up to Mount Batty, but I have been, I actually tried to find her house um, which is no longer there, but I did, I've driven through, it was many years ago, so I haven't had a trip since I've given birth to this show, um, and I'm, I would love to do that, but I have driven through Camden, um, and I've, I spent a lot of time on the coast of Maine, and there, there's so much in her poetry about the beauty of Maine nature. Let's uh, move on to another composition of yours. Uh, it's a song cycle, which recently premiered at Joe's Pub, uh, Well-Behaved Women. What, what's the, uh, the gestation of, of that particular song cycle? Well, it, there are a few reasons I started writing this. And one was that, like I said earlier, I had never written my own lyrics and I was having trouble finding finding lyrics or more poems to set. I don't think I wanted to set any more poems after Renaissance. I thought I need a break. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to take a stab at writing lyrics, lyrics myself. And of course it's terrifying. And, you know, I had that voice in my ear the whole time telling me I, I was terrible, but I thought if I could just write one song, then, you know, it feels, feels like it's more of a safe bet than committing to writing, <laughs> writing a whole show. Um, and this was right around the time that, 
the Me Too movement was unfolding and there were so many of these women's empowerment books coming out and stories or books like, um, what is it, Goodnight Stories for Rebel Rebel Girls or something. Um, like you would go to any bookstore and the front table was like, you know, well-behaved women of history or, um, you know, brave women of history. And there were just all of these things popping up. And also at the same time, my friend Miriam Lauber, who is a company member at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, she's an actor, she had written a lyric for Cleopatra to sing to Antony. So she asked me to set it to music. And so all these things were going on in my mind. I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a stab at writing for another historic woman that I love and admire and respect, and I'm going to see what happens. And so after I finished the Cleopatra song, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try Harriet Tubman. So I just, I did some research on Harriet Tubman and I found a quote of hers, which ended up turning into the chorus of the song. And I wrote a song for Harriet Tubman called on the underground. And I, after I finished every song, I would just pick another woman and write another song for her. In the end, I had enough for a song cycle. It's, it's as if, uh, I mean, there's at least a dozen women there that you feature and you're, you're writing a one-act play for each of them. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there could be a musical about every single woman in the show, for sure. Yeah, yeah. so it's great that we have a, have a taste from the, of each of them through, uh, through their songs. Let's have a listen to this. This is Hey Bobby Riggs, sung by Billie Jean King. In the battle of the sexes It's me against this sleaze And 90 million pairs of eyes All glued to their TVs It's not your normal tennis match There's a hundred grand at stake And every girl throughout the world
back You think this is a joke Well, the joke's on you Just wait and see That's a lot of fun, Carmel. Uh, sung by Hannah Ellis, is that right? That's right. right pronunciation? Yeah, yeah, terrific. What's Billie Jean King doing in your song cycle? So she is an unbelievable, obviously, an unbelievable tennis player, um, but she, she had become more prominent um, since the, in pop culture, I think since the, the movie came out about her a couple of years ago. I just loved her story. I loved that, you know, she was she she was the woman to fight so publicly about equality and pay. And I thought, well, I could write I could write about so many moments in Billie Jean's life and career, but the moment I really wanted to write about was right before she played this tennis match, which was the battle of the sexes in the mid 1970s and she was playing against Bobby Riggs and 90 million people were tuning in to watch this live televised match. And Bobby Riggs was so full of ego and chauvinism and bravura strutting around on the court. And Billie Jean was just there so focused. And I just, I wanted to know what was going on in her head at that moment. So I, I wrote her a song. It's a beautiful representation of, of that inner monologue to, to psych herself up, I guess, you know. It's pretty clear that he's here to put me in my place. Yep. Um, and then she <laughs> describes herself as king of the court. That's right. Billie Jean, king of the court. Oh, right. I thought that was subversion of the queen of the court. No, no, she's the king of the... Well, she's both. It's both, yeah. Yeah. No, I, want, I had a little play on, play on words there, but also meaningful. Yeah. And, and your, your selection of women have all of these uh, historical and, and cultural perspectives. I was delighted to see that there are a couple of Australians in there as well. That's right. I'm obsessed with the story of these two girls, um, Mina Wiley and Fanny Durack, who were the first girls. I mean, they were, they were still teenagers, I believe, or early 20s when they went to the Olympics and won gold and silver medals for swimming for Australia. This was 1912. And they were told by the head of the New South Wales Ladies Swimming Association that they shouldn't go because it was uncouth for women to swim with men watching. And so they said, uh, yeah, we don't, we're not taking no for an answer. And they raised their own money and bought passage to Sweden and came back with gold and silver medals. It's just an incredible story. Do you write the music or the lyrics first, or, or is it a, a parallel experience? Mostly the lyric. I'll usually at least start with the lyric. Um, I, sometimes I like to finish the whole lyric, then I feel like I've gotten the hard part out of the way. But sometimes, um, you know, I'll find a musical hook that's working for the chorus, and then I, I, you know, sort of go from there, doing both at once, but almost always words first. 
We're going to listen to Frida Kahlo now, sung by Natasia Diaz. Uh, this is Yo Simplemente Soy. I do not shy away from pain. I do not hide when all my demons come to light. I do not masquerade as something that I'm not. I would rather sit and rot than pretend I am all right. And so I paint what I feel. I use my canvas to interpret what I see. So my art does not conform. Who wants to be the norm?
please keep looking at my work. Maybe it opens up your mind and heart, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing, promoting and pursuing truth. body, mind, and soul, and it must not be diffused. So what are you afraid of? I avert your eyes. I won't apologize for being what I Another uh, a beautiful song. I love that one because of its um, its raw honesty. It's terrific. You know, she's a, she's a born a painter and a bitch. That's right. That was an actual quote. That's that's something Frida Kahlo said. And I thought, oh, that is so wonderful. It's so it's so unique, and that just shows her strength. This was her speaking to her critics. Um, I, I found a painting that she painted called My Birth, which you, you guys should listen or look up and um, just have a, have, a, have a quick squiz at it because it's pretty confronting. And um, she's singing to all of the critics who admonished her for this piece. Um, I love the the um, uh, culmination of the song too. You know that those beautiful lyrics of "I am sorrow, pleasure, desire, love, breath, death, and essence." Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. you're a poet, Carmel Dean. Oh, thanks, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was another one of those examples where um, I was researching the the character, and I think I saw a quote where she says, um, "I actually don't remember if it was in Spanish." No, yeah, it wouldn't would have been in Spanish, but I translated it. Um, she says, I am, uh, uh, well, the title is Yo Simplemente Soy, I Simply Am. But I, I believe what she said was, um, I am breath, I am essence, I simply am. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a jumping off point for a chorus. So I expanded on it. You've got to know your character, don't you? So uh, okay. a, a lot of research. Yep. Do you aim for perfect rhymes? Um, or near perfect rhymes. Perfect rhymes. Uh, that, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's part of the puzzle as well, yeah? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Look, I don't always get there, but, um, you know, I try to at least 90% of the time. Another woman we meet in the show, we're going to listen to one last track from Well Behaved Women, is Janet Armstrong, who is the ex-wife of Neil Armstrong.
I moved to the desert when you proposed, leaving Ohio behind. I set up our house on that huge army base where the heat sent me out of my mind. I'd go deaf from the roar of your jet overhead every damn afternoon, but I'd always smile because I knew you were one step closer to the moon. You worked such long hours and I fought awful hard not to let the loneliness in. I busied myself with the cooking and cleaning and tried to find comfort within. Oh, those first days were hard, but I learned how So I'd always smile because I knew you were one step closer to the
that that really moves me that song carmel it's it's beautiful i mean it's a, a story of the the woman behind the man and and what she sacrifices to um to support her husband right i felt like um you know this is again a universal story there's so many women who are behind their husbands um in all all areas and all um careers but it's just extra fascinating that her husband happened to be the first man who walked on the moon but this actually probably could be sung by by any number of women at any in any decade but i wanted to i wanted to show what what their life was like at the kitchen table and what kind of things they would be talking about and how the pressure actually was, you know, I guess the difference is that it's not every, it's not every person who has that kind of pressure on them. I love the um, twist also in that, you know, although Armstrong was, was uh, flying to the moon, the moon is always a symbol of, of romance and love in, in yeah, songs. And feminine, so. Yeah. And symbol of femininity. Yeah. Yeah. What was and crazy that's... too about um uh fun fact as I was rehearsing this song cycle for Joe's Pub, um Liz Calloway, who has always been an idol of mine, she she had said yes to singing the song. And she didn't know anything about Jan Armstrong, but she came to rehearsal and she said, Oh my god, Jan Armstrong went to my high school in Ohio. Wow. I mean What a lovely serendipity. Incredible, yeah. Of course, we should we should say that that um, performance was the, the wonderful, iconic Liz Calloway, who has extraordinary um, sense with the lyric and and voice. Of course, she has a perfect instrument, Sim- simply perfect. Someone like Meredith Wilson, who wrote the book, lyrics and music for the Music Man, extraordinary yeah, feat. Can can you see yourself writing the book as well one day? Uh, look, I wish I could see that. <laughs> Um, I guess never say never because I never thought I'd be writing lyrics. However, <laughs> there are people who will do it so much better than me. And I, I love, as I mentioned, the puzzle aspect of writing lyrics. And I obviously love music because it's been my primary language, artistic language. Writing the book doesn't hold that much appeal to me. Cut to 15 years from now and we'll be talking about something that I wrote book music and lyrics to. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess uh, with Renaissance and Well-Behaved Women, there hasn't been an opportunity for uh, choreography or the dance as a way to tell story. But um, that's a consideration, I guess, with composition, is it? That, that if you, you are telling a story, you look for those moments where the company can, can dance? Yeah, I think it depends on the story. And actually, I was just thinking... Um, thinking about that in relation to the story about the women on the boat um, and how, you know, obviously you don't want two hours or 90 minutes of eight women just sitting on a boat, not doing anything. So how do I build in moments for some kind of choreographic expression? And I don't know if it's necessarily going to be a dance break the way it would be in Shapubi. Um, but, but I think, yeah, either uh, having some kind of wordless vocalese or instrumental um, dance music is going to come into play for that story, for sure. I, I think it really just depends on the type of story you're telling and what's authentic to that story and to those characters. 
We should say also that anyone listening today who has fallen in love, as I know you will, with the, the music that we've heard, uh, Renaissance has a cast album and that's available from, from iTunes. And the sheet music is also available, isn't it, for Well Behaved Women? That's right, yes. Um, I have a website, wellbehavedwomenmusical.com. And then I have other things on my own personal website, carmeldean.com. There's a plug. So check, check it out. Well, I think it's, I think it's important. You've, you've, as you say, you've got to say yes. You've got to blow your own horn, don't you, in this industry? Oh, well, look, I just, I'd be happy if one person wanted to sing something I'd written. So um, if anyone's looking for stuff, I have plenty of it. I think you're going to find a lot of people who want to sing your stuff. Oh. Carmel, it has been an absolute delight conversing with you today. Thank you for um, your generosity of time and spirit and wisdom. Peter, thank you so much for taking an interest in your lovely words of support and encouragement. And your podcast is unbelievable. And I just I love that I, I get to hear these little um, snippets of Australia and not feel so far away from you guys. So thank You're... you for bringing that to us. <laughs> We're a mutual admiration society. To <laughs> right. A it's a wonderful song. <laughs> Look, can we, can we talk again maybe in five years after you've won your first Tony? Oh, my God. <laughs> Knocking on wood. Knocking on wood. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. All right. Well, continued good luck and, um, and wellness being Thank over there you. in the States. And um, we look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, Pete. Carmel is one of the most extraordinary, generous, warm and intelligent people you can meet. She is astute, driven and, as you heard, committed to her artistry and the making of powerful musical narratives. She is a remarkable musician and a divine human being. Can you tell I'm a fan? But, oh my goodness, how many ways can somebody pronounce Renaissance? I just listened back to myself and I give it Renaissance... Renaissance uh, and uh, Renaissance. So my apologies, Carmel. Of course it is Renaissance. At least I hope it is. Uh, You heard some brilliant examples of Carmel's work in today's podcast from the company of Renaissance. You heard Jason Gotte, Hannah Corneau, Michaela Bennett, Danny Harris-Kornfeld, Katie Thompson and Donald Weather Jr. And that cast recording is available from iTunes. It's a beautiful show and the melodies are haunting. The perfect marriage with the poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay. And performing the songs from Well-Behaved Women were Natasia Diaz, Hannah Ellis and Liz Calloway. You can see the entire performance of this show via YouTube. Stunning performances of Carmel's intelligent compositions. Check out Carmel's website also at www.carmeldean.com. That was a great episode. Loved recording that one. Good stuff. Seems to have sorted the technology more so now, and uh, it was a great chat. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.